Welcome to Eat, Sleep, Wine, Repeat, a podcast for all you wine lovers who, if you're like me, just cannot get enough of the good stuff. I'm Yanina Doyle, your host, brand ambassador, wine educator, and sommelier. So stick with me as we dive deeper into this ever-evolving, wonderful world of wine. And wherever you are listening to this, cheers to you. Hello to all my lovely wine lovers and welcome to another episode. And this episode, I'm rather excited to say, is on Bolivian wines. Anybody who has paid any attention to me will know that I love Latino wines, Latino land, Latino people, the food, the culture, the language. And so I'm really energized to talk about this wine producing country, which is the sixth largest in South America, but is really not known to the majority of wine drinkers around the world. So I was rather excited when Aubrey Terrasses, my guest, said she had been to Bolivia and could talk a little about her experience. So we will get to the chat with her in a little bit. But I want to touch on Bolivia, the wine-growing country, for a moment. And I have to say, the majority of what I know about Bolivia has come from the fantastically, incredibly knowledgeable Amanda Barnes, who's recently just released a wine book, and I adore it. It is the South American Wine Guide. The pictures in there, the romantic way in which she talks about these vines. If you're not already a South American wine fan, you would be after this book. So let's talk about the country and its wine region. So most of the wine regions are down in the south and that is because there is a little more seasonality here but it is all about altitude completely moderated by this altitude where most vineyards are planted at anything from about 2,000 meters up to 3,000 plus meters above sea level. It's typically a continental climate. The first vines were planted in the 1500s in 1550 in a region called Sinti and I say the majority of my Bolivian wine knowledge comes from Amanda Barnes but actually I learned and I think it's quite a fun cool fact from Nayan Goda who works in Bolivia he's actually an English winemaker but I'll talk about him a little bit later on just to keep you on your toes so I learned that in the valley of Potosi which is just west of the Sinti Valley This is where the largest deposits of silver in the whole world are. And back in those days, in the 1500s, it was the Singani national spirit that was getting the miners through the day. Hence the evolution and the development of this wine industry started from there. And back then apparently the population was more than it was in London which I think is a pretty cool fact. Now I mentioned it started in Sinti this is actually the third largest wine region so the biggest and the one that accounts for about 70% of production is Tarija so this is the furthest southern region and it's the closest to Argentina so here you're going to find about 37 wineries there's about 3,300 hectares planted and they're all planted between around 1,600 to 2,150 metres above sea level. And just as an example of how important the UV light here is, you get about double the amount that you would find in Bordeaux simply because of such high altitude. And that affects the grapes with the higher sugar levels and thicker skins and higher alcohol. Now they sit at about 21.5 degrees latitude. And I think it's worth pointing out that the majority of wine regions around the world are between 
28 degrees and 50. So this is so close to the equator. Even closer is the second largest wine region in Bolivia, that's Santa Cruz. About 600 hectares are planted here and this is more in kind of the middle of the country. So slightly further north from Tarija and to the east at a surprising 18.2 degrees latitude. Then you have Sinti, which is the third region, and we mentioned that, and that's just slightly above Tarija at 20.6 degrees latitude. And just in case you are visiting the capital, La Paz, or Cochabamba, or finally Potasi, which we already mentioned for the mining of silver, these three regions have a little bit of vines planted. Now, in terms of the grapes, it is the international varieties that have seemed to have taken off in the last few decades. Most planted is Cabernet Sauvignon, and certainly it's the red grape varieties that get far more attention than the white. So you're going to find a lot of Merlot, and Malbec, Syrah, Garnacha, Carignan there. However, the two reds that seem to be doing very, very well are Marcelin and Tannet. Now, not to forget the white grape varieties, you'll find Sauvignon Blanc. Chenin Blanc, Riesling, Viognier, Ugni Blanc, Colombard. But I want to focus just a little bit more on those two very exciting red grape varieties. Now, Tanit was first planted in 1999 by the Aranjuez family, who started in 1976. And Marcelin was first planted in 2006 by Bodega y Viñedos, Kuhlmann. Now, Tanit originated in Madaram, which is a wine region in the southwest of France. However, you may well know it better as the signature grape variety of Uruguay. Certainly in Uruguay, it has a much more of a New World style compared to in Madaram, where it's much more rustic. But Tanit as a grape variety always has these black fruits, black cherries, plums, cassis, maybe a chocolatey nature and lots of sweet spice. Very high tannins, which instantly makes it very healthy for you because those high level of antioxidants... It's the resveratrol that is good for your heart. So keep that in mind. One of the healthiest grape varieties in the world, Tanit. So, interesting about the tannins, when Tanit is grown in Bolivia, because of the UV rays, the higher altitude, the wine is incredibly soft, incredibly supple and round. So it's very interesting how Tanit is going to develop in Bolivia over the years. Now, looking at Marcelin, if you haven't heard of this grape variety, it's a very interesting one that I think is going to get a lot more attention. It's actually a crossing between Cabernet Sauvignon and Grenache, or also known as Garnacha. So this was developed in the 1960s down in the Languedoc-Roussillon region in the south of France. And it was originally created because they wanted the delicacy of Cabernet Sauvignon, but they wanted it to be more heat resistant, which Grenache is. And it's interesting because I think that draws a parallel to Pinotage as an example, the signature grape variety of South Africa, where they took Pinot Noir, they wanted the elegance of Pinot Noir and they crossed it with Sanso, which is heat resistance. Of course, they always have these plans that they take two grape varieties, cross them and they'll get exactly what they want, which rarely seems to happen. So with Marcelin, it wasn't actually till the 1990s when the grape was actually finally registered. And that's because they were really after something that had much bigger berries. They wanted something that was much more about high yields. They weren't thinking about quality. They were only thinking 
talking about quantity. So it is from the 1990s that as winemakers have focused so much more on quality production, Marcelin itself has become far more popular. And actually, this, I go off track slightly, could well be the signature grape variety for China, or at least that's what some people are saying. Certainly Lafitte Rothschild, one of the first growth chateaus of Bordeaux who have vineyards in China, they are definitely backing this grape variety Marcelin. So they have released a wine called Long Dai, which you might be interested in, and that is a Cabernet Sauvignon blended with Marcelin and Cabernet Franc. And segueing across to Bordeaux itself, it was actually the beginning of this year, 2021, that six new varieties were approved in Bordeaux because of climate change. And one of those six grape varieties is, in fact, Marcelin. Now, this grape variety itself actually does have the characteristics of both the Cabernet Sauvignon and Grenache. So you get this mix of red and black fruit. So blackcurrant, cassis, cherry. There's high alcohol. It's a really deep color, this very vibrant purple and you get lots of floral and herbal spices it's more of a medium body wine and more medium tannins so now it seems to be the perfect time that i go to my winery of the week i have managed to source a bottle of bolivian wine which i can tell you now is incredibly difficult although don't give up i'll give you some places where you can get wine certainly in the uk i have got the only bottle available and it is a marcelan tannic blend so my winery of the week is the family-owned winery responsible for planting the very first marcelan and that is bodegas y viñedos culman so these guys have been around since 1930 Now, this winery is a bit of a mystery to me. They don't have a website. It's really hard to find any information on a Facebook page they have. They don't have Instagram. But I've managed to piece things together based on little articles and little snippets I've found. So, this family-owned winery originally was focused on just making Singani. However, their winemaker, Franz, who's one of the youngest of the family, went off to work at Freshne in Napa Valley and in Mendoza and brought back all of the sparkling wine knowledge and produced, after this, the Alto Sama Brut, which is the world's first high-altitude sparkling wine. And now, of course, they have branched into still wines as well. So, the wine I have in front of me, It's a wine that was actually originally made for exporting. They planted the vines in 2006 and it has turned out to be their star wine. So they originally planted to make sparkling wine, but after five years, they realized that both of the grape varieties, Marcelin and Tannet, together could make a very premium wine. Now, the name of the wine is Alto Plano, and the name is based on the fact that it's all planted at altitude. The project actually started as a joint project with English specialists. The first vintage came to the UK in 2019 and apparently they thought they'd sent across a year's supply and it all sold out in three months. So the 2020 vintage was bigger. Not only did it come to the UK, apparently it's also in some places in Europe and as far afield as Japan. 
And with its success, they're now selling it in their homeland in Bolivia. So I guess as the years continue, you'll find it in more places around the world. This is the most exported Bolivian wine. So good luck everyone trying to find a bottle. The other wine that they make, which is 100% Marcelan, which I don't believe is in the UK, is called Gran Patrono. And that is supposed to be absolutely divine. So for my American listeners, keep an eye out on that. Okay, I think it's time that I pour this wine. Okay. Okay, actually, what I want to point out, first of all, is the colour. Really kind of deep and quite inky. Like a lovely ruby, bright colour, but with a a more purpley edge, which I guess, if you're listening about the marshland, that's probably why. Now, on the nose, medium plus intensity, it really smells really warm and Mediterranean and and spicy. Actually, I am drawing a parallel to Carmenet slightly, but let me not confuse you and just stick with the tasting though. It's filled with black fruit and and red currants. I mean, that's probably why I am pushing it towards the Carmenet style. So red currants are in there too. And it has this real chocolatey edge, lots of ripe, rich black cherries. And, and then it's got this nice fragrant note so kind of dried thyme and rosemary i am gonna go with so mm. full bodied but fresh and lively there's a high concentration of really bright fruit flavors very juicy but then it leads to loads of acidity and there's actually a real lift on the finish real elegance coming through at the end very smooth lovely kind of velvety medium tannins and that again softened by the marcelan but i guess this is a really interesting example of how tannic really can be very very soft and again i'm getting these lovely juicy kind of dried strawberries on the palate more mixing with lovely black cherries this is delicious a really cracking example for my first Bolivian wine drinking experience ever. This costs $15.99 from Lathwaite's, but you can also get it from Avery's of Bristol. And it's the 2020 vintage. I'm going to go very, very basic in terms of a food pairing. Red meats, roasted, grilled, barbecued, something a little bit richer, perhaps a stew as well would work perfectly. Right, hopefully that's a nice enough introduction into the Bolivian wine world and now I want to take you over to Aubrey where we'll talk about her experiences and her opinions on the Bolivian wine scene. So why are we talking about Bolivian wine? I asked you didn't I? I want to talk about a wine theme and you picked Bolivia so that's a little random I think many people would feel. Yeah, I mean, despite some people might think we're already getting random going to Bulgaria and Crete, but um, (laughs) Bolivia is still very, you know, very small player in the wine world. Um, But I have a a very personal connection there because I married into a Bolivian family. There we Um, go. There's the connection. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, So my my husband is American, but he's first generation. His siblings were born in Bolivia, his parents moved when they moved to the DC area when they were around I guess 17 or 18 okay. um, 
but he did go back in the summers and I traveled with him to Bolivia in 2017 and I had the opportunity to go to the wine regions there and I actually oh, wrote wow. an article for Gilson. Um, <gasps> ah, okay. So when you say you went to the wine regions, now there are obviously like three main wine regions and the down towards the south did you go to all of them or did you go to the wine capital Tarija yeah I should have I should have not made that plural I just went to Tarija <laughs> but I learned about all the wine regions <laughs> listen never let the truth get in the way of a good story you did the wine regions plural full stop that's yeah. brilliant okay well yeah tell, tell us about that journey because people just when I mentioned that Bolivian wine exists they just it goes straight over the head and I mean the reason for that as well is very very little is exported yeah. right so tell me you flew into La Paz which I can't wait to do it's on my list I as well am a fellow Latino lover my partner is Colombian sadly their wine that they make is just sugar fruity weird so yeah not gonna <laughs> happen can't, can't really visit Colombia for that but I try my best to visit as many South American countries or Central American countries as I can so La Paz, I find curious. I mean, the altitude is insane. Just arriving in, it's over 4,000 meters above sea level. And I hear like the altitude sickness for people arriving. They have like oxygen machines in the airport in case tourists just turn up and can't cope. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that that's really the biggest defining feature about Bolivia in general is that there's so much elevation. I mean, not in the Amazons, you don't see it as much, but um, mm-hmm. La Paz is... Um, something like gosh I'm thinking in feet but maybe you can help me with the meters oh, but because I do meet it sorry yeah because it's so it's apparently 4,000 meters so yes that's right yeah so it's like it's like 1100 or it's 11,000 feet or something like that perfect you it's talk insane. in feet I'll talk in meters and then we can make everybody feel comfortable it will be inclusive <laughs> yes <laughs> inclusive perfect um yeah it's all about altitude. so anyway so you fly into La Paz you're all super, super high altitude. And thankfully for anyone who wants to do that, then actually you go down further. <laughs> if you go to the wine yeah. region, it actually gets less altitude. So it's actually, you can acclimatize in the wine regions. That is an instruction. It's she's the best way to handle the country, go down to the wine regions and acclimatize, right? Yeah, perfect. Yeah, so you get to La Paz Airport. What do you do then? How do you get to the wine regions and tell us your story? Yeah, I think the easiest thing to do, there are local flights in Bolivia. So I think mm-hmm. that it's probably the fastest way to get around. I don't yeah. really suggest driving because the roads are pretty insane during <laughs> much of the country. There's actually um, a long road um, that my husband told me when he was a kid they would take. It's, it's literally called the road of death. Oh my god! Because <laughs> it's this giant mountain road where you know, like somehow, like two um, vans transporting people just somehow like pass each other. But it's so tiny and so dangerous. Um, so I don't really recommend. I, in general, I don't recommend driving. Even in the cities, I think that you should have um, a driver or a local take you around. Mm-hmm. See, I do believe that we flew in, and um, from there, it's it's you know, pretty easy to arrange a, there are quite a few um, local drivers and it's not expensive. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's the best way to get around is have a a local who specializes in the wine region kind of take you around to the different spots. Um, And there are primarily, I mean, there's not a lot of production there, but I think there are about six or seven in Tariha that are making you know kind of more of an international style and something that's mm-hmm. a little bit more serious and elevated yeah okay do you remember tasting your white grape varieties 
Yes. Uh, so, um, you know, like a lot of up and coming wine regions, they often start off with the international varieties just because they're more familiar and they sell well, yes. things like Sauvignon Blanc and Chardonnay. Um, so the, I will say the Sauvignon Blanc from Tereja, there's a, um, an unofficial subregion called La Conception and the Sauvignon mm-hmm. Blanc there is really beautiful. It's, it's very clean. Um, okay. Actually from the winery, La Conception is very nice, very like kiwi scented. And then what's interesting though, is that, so I mentioned that things are very high elevation there. It was 4,000 meters in La Paz, but in, um, in Tereja, the range is somewhere from 1,600 to 2,150 meters, which is still Correct, very yes. high. Well done, because yeah. I thought you were going to go in feet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's still, I mean, yeah, it's still, you know, for feet, I think it's like 5,200 yeah, 5, to 7,000 feet. It's super feet. high, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I mean, to put it in perspective, that's, um, you know, more than twice as high as Napa Valley. So it's funny when they talk about high elevation in Napa Valley because, you know, it's, it's nothing. <laughs> and you're like, uh, go down south. Yeah. <laughs> but so kind of like the effects that you find in Mendoza, which is probably more familiar to most people. Yeah. Um, when you plant a tannic grape or even kind of a more neutral grape at really high elevation, the UV light, um, first of all, you have more stem lunification. So it's a riper tannin. And it mm-hmm. also just penetrates and creates more aromatics as well. So um, Uni Blanc, which is a very neutral grape, you know, they use it in cognac, uh, yeah. actually gets a lot more character here. And I saw that doing really well there, a lot more kind of stone fruit, oh. much more structure. And that was very surprising for me. Very, very interesting. One thing that I've uh, read, I, I like to consider myself a Bolivian wine expert. No, I'm not. <laughs> I have got a beautiful book from Amanda Barnes, who wrote the South American Wine Guide. And I, funny enough, featured in one of my Instagram posts just a, a little bit about Bolivian wine because I found it fascinating. And then you came along and said, I want to talk about <laughs> Bolivian wine. So it was all perfect. Serendipitous. It was meant to be. <laughs> so in this beautiful wine book, which I advise anybody to go and get if you are a South American wine lover, she says that actually Tanit is doing really, really well. So for anybody who knows, mm-hmm. Tanit is now like the signature great variety of Uruguay. But whereas it can have quite a lot of tannins and be very grippy as standard as a great variety, it's actually very, very smooth in Bolivia. So, mm-hmm. I mean, she personally feels that there is loads and loads of potential for Tanit to do really well in the future, which I think is quite nice to know. Yeah, I, I would say that it hasn't quite come out as the signature grape but oh no I don't think yeah um the the owner of Aranwes um I made it Mm -hmm. with a French accent but um (laughs) 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 Uh, um so that's one of the bigger wineries down there it was the first to win an international gold medal um so he actually even was the first to create a single vineyard Tana from the subregion of Santa Ana and he's, okay. he believes in 10 years, that's what Bolivia will be known for. And I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, just like Malbec, which is another very tannic grape normally, and mm-hmm. Argentina, to not, just because of that UV exposure and the high altitudes, you have this freshness of acidity, as well as just that softer, kind of juicier tannin. So it's a completely different style than you'd find from the southwest of France. So are you finding, in general, if you were to describe to people Bolivian red wines, the style in general, would you think it's fair to say 
juicy, concentrated fruit and softer tannins, rich and ripe. Would that be a good way to describe characteristics of the grapes there? Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, it's not, you know, as it's kind of, I think in general, South, a lot of South American wines for me are almost somewhere in between New World and Old World. Mm-hmm. It's not as because if you look at California, I mean, you get a lot of sun exposure in Bolivia, but because of that elevation and the mm-hmm. the vigor as well, I mean, it's really poor soils. Like everything has to be hand harvested, and so yeah. you get not as much overly plush, very ripe fruit that you might see from from California or Australia. Um, but you're still obviously getting a lot more kind of softness and, and ripeness than you would from, from France or Italy. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. When we come and talk about the white grape varieties, the queen of Bolivia, as I've seen it written, is Muscatel de Alejandria, which yeah. obviously many people know the kind of Muscat family and the kind of peachy floral nature that Muscat can present. Presumably, considering I think a third of the plantings are still Muscatel de Alexandria, you must have tried a few when you were there. Yeah, you know, it's funny because that wasn't even the first group that came to mind. And I, it, well, and there's a reason for it. There are they do make um, they do make still wine for that. There's even a couple of sparkling mm-hmm. wines, um, but uh, so the reason why the plantings are so high is because they use it for the national spirit. It's called Singani. Ah, so, yes. Have you had the cocktail, the chuflé cocktail Chufle. that they? Yes. Have you had the chuflé? Yeah, uh, it's it's great. So um, it's made with singani and ginger. Um, singani mm-hmm. is also really good with some Coca Cola. Um, oh, yeah. but... <laughs> no, I'm not a Coke fan, but okay, some people are, I think. <laughs> uh, and if there if there is anyone in America that's looking for Bolivian wines, the main importer is actually called Shoefly Imports. Oh, how funny! Oh, brilliant. There's a few things in the pipeline for the UK. I know there's a few wines that are coming across, and ironically, the last year and a half has put a bit of a stop on it. But actually, mm. we have another winery that should any month now be arriving into the UK so we, we should have a little bit more Bolivian wine oh yeah when you were there did you taste any of the food I've heard that there's a, a fruit called pake and it tastes like candy floss and ice cream I don't remember that fruit <laughs> yeah apparently it's like an ice they call it the ice cream bean mm. and I looked it up and I thought oh my god who wouldn't want to eat a fruit well maybe not but candy floss and ice cream just sounds quite fun for for a fruit doesn't it yeah, no, I, if I tried it, it doesn't, it's not standing out, um, so, but I think that I would have remembered that. I think you would have done as well. <laughs> okay, so obviously a lot of then the Muscatel de Alejandria is then used in this kind of, this brandy production, the mm-hmm. Singani, but do you feel like there's not much Muscatel to actually drink as a still wine then, sadly? I, you know, it's there, but they, it, I haven't seen, I, I felt like Sauvignon Blanc. Um, was was probably the top performer. Mm, um, I mean, mm. no, Muscatel of Alexandria is really great, but I guess you know when I'm looking at my when I was looking back at my wine notes before the before the interview, um, they they really weren't showcasing that as much. As I mentioned, I did see it in some sparkling wines, but um, yeah, a lot of it is used for Singani. But then I think it's like with anything. Bolivia has been kind of left behind in the wine market of South America. They're like the sixth largest producer, but again, they're not exporting anything and they their economies 
not great mm-hmm. um and also you know they're landlocked as well which i don't know if we look through history it's exactly the problem yeah you know not having even a river not having any ocean which by the way chile i might love you because i work for a chilean winery but reading the poor history of the bolivians the top part of the atacama desert used to be theirs yeah. so you know what give it back you've got enough <laughs> give them a few meters just give them the tiny bit of the top yeah. so they can get to the sea uh you know it's funny because if you talk to any bolivian today to that there's still a chip on their shoulder oh i can it, imagine it really, it really was devastating for the com- the country um because of course like you know especially before airplanes you couldn't mm-hmm. you couldn't export they didn't have any trade they always had to go through chile and that's absolutely still to this day i think part of the reason why you know you don't see bolivian wines as well represented and i mean that also means that not as many people come to bolivia so they didn't have you know, Michelle Rowland walk in and, yeah. and like consult mm-hmm. on their wineries. The the budget wasn't there. The, the familiarity wasn't there. Um, and that's starting to change. They have had some some input from um, some European uh, agencies and, and masters of wine, as well as um, a lot of the, the producers now that people can travel have studied in, in Sacramento and in um, Chile, the Maipo Valley. And so you're you're starting to see like that influence that has elevated the quality pretty significantly over the last 15 years. And I think a lot of that comes from the younger generation. Yeah, okay. Well, no, it's interesting, at least thankfully, that's the future. I think, you know, if you look at Chile, 30 years ago, Chile was making really heavily oaked wines, uh, high in alcohol, really heavily extracted, and now lower in alcohol, less oak, fresher styles. You know, they're still learning now but they're doing really fantastic stuff so I guess that's where um, Bolivia is is gonna go but I think that's probably where when they have these Criolla varieties these amazing old varieties like mm-hmm. Muscatel de Alejandria and Negra Criolla which by the way anyone is Listan Prieto which is the same grape variety as Pais in Chile which is a very cool grape variety that I'm loving at the moment very very different but I guess they are choosing to probably step away from these Criolla varieties and focus more on international like you say Sauvignon Blanc because that's just going to be a much easier sell it's going to be far more accepted with the typical wine consumer because they feel comfortable with the Sauvignon Blanc or a Cabernet Sauvignon rather than a what the hell is Negra yeah. Criolla. <laughs> uh, and, you know, so a lot of the Criolla varieties are still being produced there and a lot of those are consumed locally. So certainly I would say that if you're actually looking at the percentage of production, I'm willing to bet that a lot of it is still kind of, you know, um, indigenous varieties and sweeter styles. But those making, searching for more international palate have, have moved away from the Criolla varieties. Crioja. <laughs> see, ah, see, because I, I like to think that I can speak a bit of Spanish. Eight years in the, the making and I'm still probably only just intermediate. It depends because two double L's you can pronounce as a J or a Y. So it just depends on what accent you want. Okay, I go with Crioja, but you can go with Crioja. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I mean, my, as I said, my, my Spanish is, is very little and it's usually with a French accent for some reason. So That's because that's your default, isn't it? when not speaking English yeah my brain is like oh you're speaking a foreign language and so it's funny <laughs> when I when I'm in uh, Spanish-speaking countries they're like oh are you French I'm like no <laughs> <laughs> did you dine in any of the restaurants in La Paz when you were there um I 
did. Um, my, but I can't really, honestly, I can't recall the names of it. We were kind of yeah, being yeah. shown around because my husband's uncle lives there. So he took us everywhere and I didn't really maybe take proper notes. So sorry mm. for that. No, no, just I've heard that Gusto, Gusto is like potentially the best restaurant if you want like a Bolivian wine selection, like the sommelier there has pretty much some of the best Bolivian wine. So if anybody's going to fly into La Paz before maybe going down to the wine region or even when you're about to fly out, Gusto apparently is a restaurant that should be on your list to really work your way through some Bolivian wine amazing there we go um thank you so much i think i mean i suppose you know we can't really cover too much of believing wine because people get too excited and then they won't be able to actually get hold of any of the wine so then we're getting you excited for no reason no but you everyone in america you are lucky you've got an importer and um i'll put a little bit of extra information for those of us in europe and uk i'll quickly do a bit of research and i'll put that in at the end of this episode so um thanks so much for taking me through a little bit of your journey uh definitely to bolivia and um hopefully when we're all traveling around again and we can meet at wine fairs i shall see you in real life which would be nice I'm looking forward to it oh fantastic no thank you very much and cheers to you thank you take care bye bye now i said i would let people know if there were other places to get bolivian wine and one of the websites in europe is vin sogno you can go to the website and you can find wines from the winery uba irenda and it's from a sub-region called samaipata in santa cruz don't forget there's a transcript you can download to look at all the names of these wine regions you just need to find that in my show notes and there will be a link now i said to you i was going to talk to you a little bit about the english winemaker nayan goda hopefully i'm pronouncing his name correctly he is working with jardin Oculto, so the hidden garden. And this winery has 200 year old plus vines, all ancestral vines and grata vines. And when I say ancestral, we're talking about the three exciting grape varieties of Bolivia. So that is Moscatel de Alejandria, the white grape variety, then Negra Criolla, which is also known as Pais in Chile or Listan Prieto originally in Lanzarote or Tenerife. And the last one, which I don't think we've mentioned, is Vistoquena. Now, these vines were not trellised, they are not how we see vineyards now, but in fact supported by growing on trees. And so actually to pick the vines, they need to take ladders. Some of the vines go up as high as six meters. So you can imagine what back-breaking work and time it takes to be going up and down these ladders, picking the grapes, something very unusual. Now this winery is making wines in the Sinti Valley. And as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, chatting with Aubrey, there is a winery that is importing their wines to the UK, but has been stopped in terms of timing based on the last year and a half's problem. So any moment now, I am hoping that these wines land in the UK. So for my UK listeners, do keep an eye, ear and tongue (laughs) open, ready to taste the wines of Jardin Oculto, because I believe they're coming very soon. Now, to finish off, I will give you a wine quote, as I always do. And this one is just a lovely one. It was apparently printed in the New York Times in 1967. And it said, To take wine into our mouth is to savour a droplet of the river of human history. And I thought that one was rather appropriate because certainly Bolivia has a pretty extensive wine history, but one we know nothing about. And I hope that you will go out and find a bottle so you can taste 
a droplet of the river of that Bolivian human history right that's it thank you ever so much for listening everyone do get in contact with me yanina at eat sleep wine repeat.co.uk or on instagram at eat sleep underscore wine repeat like the podcast subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already share it with all your wine loving friends and leave a comment if you can because it makes the podcast more discoverable you are all fantastic go out and achieve wonderful things this week drink some delicious wines and next Next week, I have a very exciting episode talking with a celebrity chef. So watch this space. We're going to be talking about some premium wines. I'll be raising some expensive stuff to you then. (laughs) Until next week, cheers to you.